Welcome to Gutsy Matters Podcast, brought to you by storednaturally.com. I'm Wendy Allen. And I'm Helen Reynolds. Gutsy Matters Podcast is for independent thinkers who aren't afraid to stand out from the crowd. Our conversations are with people who, like us, are willing to create something they believe in, something that helps us all to live more sustainably, more consciously, and with greater connection. We're delighted you're joining us to discover, uncover, and create opportunities and perspectives about health, wealth, and sustainable living. 99% of Australian children aged between 2 and 18 do not eat enough vegetables. In fact, very few of us eat enough vegetables, according to a recent Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report. The report found that across all stages of life, Australians generally do not eat enough healthy foods. Eating a balanced diet, including sufficient fruit and vegetables, reduces your risk of developing conditions such as heart disease and diabetes. So what can we do as a community? Dr. Daniil Carter is a co-founder of Flourish PYO, a not-for-profit health promotion charity in Toowoomba, Queensland. Flourish believe that all people should have access to fresh, healthy produce and the knowledge to use it to nourish themselves and their families to prevent diseases. Welcome, Daniil. Hi, Wendy. Thank you. It's so great to have you, Daniil, um, and we really love that this is a, a basically a follow-on episode from your co-founders, a lovely chat with your co-founder, Annie Cram. So it's, it's a pleasure to have you both. Thanks, Helen. I think Annie did a, a wonderful job in communicating um, what Flourish is about. Yeah, she did. She really warmed our hearts. So we wanted to, to be able to talk with you because we were absolutely shocked with this statistic that 99% of Australian children between 2 and 18 do not eat enough vegetables. That really um, floored us, basically. We, we had no idea that it was that bad. And we were wondering if you would be happy to, to share a bit more information about that and, and your, your thoughts on why eating fruit and vegetables is so important and why the statistic is so high and, and things like that. Yeah. We were very, very shocked when we started looking into this as well. And, you know, as a GP, I've seen throughout people's lives the problem that occurs when they're not eating well and looking after themselves over the course of their lifetime. And that's something that I wanted to do something more about because I thought there's no point just putting a band-aid solution on at the end of the day when someone has diabetes or they've had a heart attack. We really need to go back right to the beginning and change things from there to save a lot of heartache, save a lot of pain and intervene before this becomes a problem because the statistics are skyrocketing in terms of chronic disease in our country because of our lifestyle and also because of our ageing population. And it's really something that needs to be done at all levels. So I think the fact that the statistics are so high is quite a complex issue and the answers range from the individual factors right through to the policies that affect our population health at a government level. At individual and the family level, it's things such as, you know, child preferences and tastes and texture, the availability of health food versus junk food in the household, the modelling habits 
within the household of the children are observing what the parents are eating and following on from that. I think the busyness of family life these days as well is also leading to higher consumption of convenience foods. There's also the financial costs associated with eating a healthier diet. And the statistic is that it, it costs about a third more to of the family budget to eat a, a diet that's consistent with the current recommendations. For families that are on low budget um, and low income households, they really just can't afford that little bit extra. There's nothing left over at the end of the week. So, you know, there's also for families who are um, from low-income backgrounds, the factors such as the proportion of waste that's sometimes associated with fresh fruit and vegetables in that you might buy it with the intent of using it, but if you don't use it within a couple of days, it degrades in the fridge or it degrades on the bench and um, you're then throwing that fruit out. And so it's the decision between do I buy something that's processed and is going to you know, be able to still be fine after months in the cupboard versus buying something that... Um, I might end up throwing out. And so it's really a decision about best to value for money in the short term when they're deciding what they they pick off the supermarket shelves. There's, I think there's also a bit of a misconception that it, it takes more time to prepare healthy food. And it might do if you're used to doing things a certain way. It does take more brain power. And I think that's that's the thing when you're making any change in your behavior it's not so much the actual the facts when you look at it it's the extra effort and thought that's required in changing a behavior that sometimes becomes a bit of a barrier at the community level I think within schools and workplaces what's socially acceptable and what's normal and the culture around foods can really have an impact as well if your child's the only one sitting there with a healthy lunchbox then they're going to feel like they're on the outer so we really need to try and encourage a change in culture between um, what lunchboxes look like you know what people are eating in the workroom at um, in their workplaces the prices of healthy food the availability and access the environmental settings are there vending machines at sporting grounds and all of those types of things and also the proportion of takeaway shops in certain suburbs um, it's definitely been proven that lower socioeconomic suburbs have higher number of takeaway shops. And I think that that's just perpetuating a cycle and I think that that's unfair. And it's just, I guess, really playing to, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just adding to the problems that we're seeing. At a population level, things such as junk food advertising that affects our food choices um, and also, also the lack of enduring funding for preventative projects for the promotion of healthy diet and active lifestyles as well. Things such as the 10,000 Steps program, they had funding for that for about three years and the, the whole it lost its funding because over that three-year period it just didn't make um, didn't reach statistical significance when they were looking at the difference that it made in people's activity levels however it did make some difference and and we know that with anything with dietary change or, or any of the studies that are done in this area you, you can't expect immediate change 
And so the funding's being pulled before these programs are actually having an opportunity to prove their worth and to prove their value. And we really need something that, you know, goes at least 10 years or 20 years so that you can monitor the change over the generations that this ongoing persistent encouragement to do, uh, to look after ourselves better has an opportunity to, to prove its, its worth. So, yeah, it's really a huge problem. There's no quick solution. And making small incremental changes to our own diets in our own household whilst advocating for changes at community and government level, I believe that there is hope that we can turn all of this around. You know, you've taken a really big perspective there that really sits me on my seat, I guess, in a way about how big the problem is. You're, you're right about the interge- intergenerational change, you know. Those programs do really need time to be able to see results. What it, Do you think there's something that we don't understand about what fruit and vegetables do in our body that maybe we don't understand that, motiv- you know, therefore because we don't know it, it we, we're not motivated to eat them in the way that we should be? Yeah, I do. I think... If you ask most Australians what a healthy diet looks like, I think they'd be able to tell you. Um, and I think they'd even be able to tell you some of the benefits um, of, you know, what fruits and vegetables might do. That it, you know, we have lower rates of cancer if we eat more fruits and vegetables. I think people generally understand that. But perhaps there's, there's a lack of understanding of the actual mechanisms that are involved in that. And for example, something at a very sort of superficial explanation is understanding that fruit and vegetables supply us with the antioxidants and the vitamins that we need that help to repair our body. And the way that prevents cancer is that just through natural living, through the oxidative process that happens in our cells when we eat food, it produces cytokines and free radicals and what those chemicals do is actually destroy the DNA at, at at that very cellular level and the fruits and vegetables and the good stuff that they provide help our body to heal that damage and if we have enough damage over time the DNA gets so distorted that the cells start to replicate themselves without those checks in place and that's where cancer develops and so Foods that are highly processed, that have high fats, high salts, all of those kind of foods, when our body processes those types of foods, it creates more of these cytokines and free radicals and those destructive chemicals that cause more damage to our cells. And so cancer happens more because of that. If we eliminate or reduce those in our diets and bump up the amount of fruits and vegetables that we're eating, then we have so much more of those positive beneficial chemicals in our body that help to repair and restore and give us longevity in our life because there's not that destructive process happening at that very, very cellular level. Um, and that's just one in a very simplified form or explanation as to why eating well and taking care of ourselves and what we do every day on a daily basis is so important. And I guess it's really relevant at the moment too because, you know, they help us um, prevent long-term disease but they also build our immune system and um, yeah. keep us healthy on a, on a day-to-day 
basis from colds and flus. Yeah, absolutely. And I think over the last 10 years, there's been so much research that started happening um, in the area of dietary patterns and food and disease. And the findings are quite phenomenal. So in 2010, there was a study called the EPIC study, which stands for the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition. And it found that lifestyle improvements such as smoking cessation, healthy diet, safe alcohol consumption and physical activity could prevent 93% of diabetes, 81% of heart attacks, 50% of strokes and 36% of all cancers. And that, I mean, that's pretty incredible. If you think about how different our world would look, how different our hospital and health systems would look, if we would just take note of these things and actually put them into play. Well, even if we if we brought that into our very own lives, you know, how different would each of our families look if exactly. we each uh, took more care? You know, would we have a grandparent still or would we have our parents still or our brothers or sisters? Yep, absolutely. And I guess the, the shame is that studies like that are probably well-received and, and well-publicised in the academic world, but to the general public, people don't hear those statistics and therefore aren't really realising the benefits. Yeah. And I think, too, we have to acknowledge that that while we might understand that at a brain level, sometimes the practical aspects of integrating it into our lifestyles as they are now, um, there can be a number of barriers to doing that. So for some of us, it might be as simple as just, you know, writing a meal plan and, and trying to incorporate more fruits and veggies into our everyday lives. For some, it might they might be motivated enough to do a massive lifestyle change and the whole family is willing to go along with that. But there are, there are many barriers. And I guess particularly um, for me, I'm really passionate about advocating for those in the low income bracket because there is a... There is a great, what's called a social disadvantage gradient associated with disease and those who have lower incomes have higher rates of disease. There are many different reasons for that that are completely not related to health but actually impact on health. And there's a lecturer at Griffith University by the name of um, Richard Olley who uses an apple tree analogy for this whereby in Australia we're fortunate that we live in a wealthy country and if you have an apple tree full of apples and you have a person who's, who starts life being tall and a person who starts life being short and you say to them, you're free to pick the apples from the tree, take as much as you want, the person who starts life on the front foot with the, high, the advantage of being taller can start picking the apples immediately. The person who starts life with some inequality, some disadvantage is shorter. So they have to spend more time initially going and looking for a ladder and going and getting a basket to put their apples in before they can even start picking. And so it's about acknowledging that while we think we have equality, there are actually major inequalities that exist often for no fault of anybody other than being born into a family that's disadvantaged. And so I, I think it just it, it shows that there is so much more that needs to be done in terms of levelling that playing field so that we can eliminate the inequalities that exist and try and improve chronic disease 
uh, opportunities for prevention of chronic disease in those who start life further behind the eight ball so that we're not perpetuating a cycle of poverty. Um, because once you've developed a chronic disease, um, the ongoing implications of that are, you know, you, you have to then spend more money on medications and healthcare. You're, you have more appointments that you need to attend. It affects your employment. And then that causes more financial disadvantage. And, and then it's ongoing. You know, your family and your children suffer because you're spending money on buying your diabetes medications or your asthma medications or whatever it might be. Um, or you're spending months in hospital recovering from a, a myocardial infarction at the age of 36. So, you know, the problems are huge. And while making choices individually is simple for many of us, for others, the the choices aren't really equal or as easy and the solutions aren't as simple to obtain as it might be for those who are more well-off. And it's interesting you say when you're talking about suburbs that obviously um, junk food franchises target um, perhaps low socioeconomic areas in suburbs or, or generally in, in suburbs that have a low socioeconomic background. So how can people, and particularly those, as you say, with a, with a lower socioeconomic background, access more vegetables and bypass those that junk food? I mean, I know it's a lot about education, but there are some simple ways that people can access more vegetables in the general populace as well as those people that are perhaps a little disadvantaged. Yeah, I guess... Um you know, there, there are options that are starting to pop up around the place of joining community groups where, um, you know, like community gardens. And there are some food charities as well, like Food Assist in town, who who have a good proportion of fresh fruit and vegetables in um, the packs that they provide at, at a very low cost. And so I think, you know, promoting and talking about things that are available in our local communities can help to some degree. And I think also with schools educating children about healthy eating and a lot of schools are looking at and have already established some great um, garden type initiatives about growing a few vegetables just to show children how to grow vegetables and, and how eating them is, is a really beneficial way to improve their health as well. and. I think there's a lot of programs that are out there if we can draw attention to those that people can look at. I mean, you don't have to live in a house with a block of land to be able to grow some vegetables. There's some great initiatives that you can grow uh, enough vegetables to feed your family on a on a unit balcony, for instance. So I think it's about educating people about the healthy eating one to then motivate them to grow their own and and things like Flourish Pick Your Own, which is what PYO stands for, is a great initiative for those perhaps who, who haven't got to that stage of actually realising that they can grow or, or know how to grow. It's learning how to grow vegetables and, and what vegetables are, well, the varieties of vegetables and what you can do with those. So so things like what you're all doing at Flourish is, is fantastic and as you said community gardens as well and there are lots of barriers and I guess it's up to everybody in the community to try and um, help break down some of those barriers as well. 
Yeah, I think a number of um, community gardens also have seed libraries that are usually um, free to access. So for people wanting who don't have any leftover um, money at the end of the week, being able to go and, and take a few seeds and start the whole process and if they are able to learn about how you collect your own seeds at the end of, you know, at the end of the season, then um, the initial setup costs are, are really very minimal. And, and I guess that comes from the education process and people knowing what to do and how to do that because, yes, I mean, if you have tomatoes, you can save the seeds or have pump, buy a pumpkin, you can, you can save the seeds and grow your own. Yeah, so it's, all, it's, it's really educating people, one, where their food comes from and then two, how to, how to grow your own and, and how to access fruit and vegetables and, and also eating what's in season. I think as a, as a population, generally we expect to be able to buy what we want in terms of fruit and vegetables all year round and you yeah. can't buy them all year round. You actually, there's, there's a season for different fruits and vegetables. So, you know, if you buy them out of season, that's when they're expensive. So, yeah, look around and there's lots. There's lots of um, places that have little, um, you know, people with food that's abundant, have it on their footpath, you know, please take some lemons or or that sort of thing. And we, we did a podcast with um, a lady from Brisbane, Nims, who was talking about a uh, Bring Us Your Excess program that's a fantastic program about people, you know, it could be people growing um, vegetables in their backyard, you know, you put in a whole punnet of, of tomato plants and suddenly have all these tomatoes at one hit and you don't know what to do with them. And to, to farmers who can't sell them because of um, regulations within a, a marketing agent that they go through that they have to be all round and no imperfections or whatever it might be and, and using those vegetables and and fruit to yeah, give to people and to ensure that that there's no waste as well. So it's a whole cycle, isn't it? Yeah. I, I love that there's more of a sharing economy starting to kind of develop um, within suburbs and within towns. I, I just think that's really lovely that we're starting to get back to more of that village way of thinking about things. Actually looking out for each other. You know, yeah. that's, that's such an important part, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, the fact that that fosters connections and uh, communication and relationships is really important because mental health is such um, a, a big and, and growing problem as well and eating more vegetables has been proven to uh, assist in recovery from mental health too. So how many vegetables do we need to be eating so the current recommendations are um, five serves of vegetables a day. And I think if you leave that till the end of the day to try and have that at dinner, that's a lot of vegetables on your plate. <laughs> it can be quite overwhelming. <laughs> Is it fruit and vegetables or just vegetables at five uh, serves? So two, two of fruit and five of vegetables every day. What's a serve? So a serve, it depends on the type of food. So um, leafy greens, I think it's like a cup. But, yeah, the specifics of that, I think dietitians are probably um, better to, to talk to about the particular serving sizes. But there are some really great resources online that you can uh, look at on the Australian Government website 
about what proportions of each particular food. For fruit, it's fairly simple in that, you know, it's two small apricots or an apple or a banana, half a melon, that kind of thing. For vegetables, yeah, it's a little bit different. It does depend on um, cooked weight as well versus, you know, fresh weight. So, yeah. Wendy interviewed me a while back about how we became vegetarian and then largely vegan, but I can, I'm sure we're getting enough fruit and vegetables. But I do notice in winter my fruit intake just plummets. I, um, I don't know, that's just a, a thing for me. I get into, into a habit and my vegetable intake probably increases. But anyway, that's a little thing I work on each winter. But um, I ser- if I think back to what we were eating when we were meat eaters – um, we certainly weren't getting enough fruit and vegetables and that's why we were overweight. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to become vegetarian to combat that, but um, I can certainly identify with the bigger problem, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's interesting because I read a report that, um, and admittedly it was a 2018 report, but that's not that long ago, but it, it did say that just over half, so 51.3% of Australians over, aged over 18, that was, um, actually met the guidelines for the recommended daily serves of fruit, but only one in 13 or 7.5% met the guidelines for the serves of vegetables a day, which is, um, yeah, pretty amazing, isn't it? Only one in 13 people get enough vegetables. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is easier to eat fruit, I think, because fruit is sweet. We naturally find it easier to eat. And you almost have to, if you don't grow up with it, you almost have to learn or teach yourself to really enjoy vegetables until you um, you know how to prepare it in such a way that it doesn't take a long time and it is really delicious. It takes time for your taste buds to adjust. Uh, we've sort of been changing the way that we eat in our family for about the last seven years. It's been a very slow transition. I have two children, they're aged nine and 11. And when I, during medical school, you really don't get taught much at all about diet. You get told, yes, you need to eat a healthy diet, but what that actually looks like, there's very little education about that because you refer to a dietitian. <laughs> so I, I, when I started in general practice, I started reading more articles about preventative health and about diet and started going, well, if I'm going to be saying this to people, I need to actually be living it myself as well and started getting very passionate about what it looks like and, and the impact that change can have on our health. And so we, you know, we didn't eat terribly. We didn't have takeaway a lot. We didn't have a lot of processed foods or anything like that. But I guess we were relying more on carbohydrates and meat and the token veggies that you kind of throw in. Um, so we've, we've been transitioning. That was over, what's that, sorry? That was us too. Yeah. <laughs> we've been transitioning over the last seven years to the point where every second night now we do try to have a vegetarian meal and that's so that we're consciously considering um, using vegetables and I guess non-meat proteins and legumes and things like that to try and get a, a broader source of nutrients and increase our fibre and um, generally change our kids' thinking around food as well so that we can set them up for life. Um, so... I, I understand the difficulties in, in that it takes to actually make those changes and make them sustainable within your family. It's really easy to do 
a radical change for a short period of time, but then when things get extra busy or stressful, you just resort back to what doesn't take any thought in preparing something. So, you know, spaghetti bolognese for us used to look like white pasta um, with mint and pasta sauce, and that was pretty much it. Maybe a grated carrot in there um, so that the kids were getting some veggies years ago. But I slowly started going, okay, well, what can I add? So I'll, I'll add an extra vegetable into that mix for the next month. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, tinned brown lentils look a little bit, bit like mints in terms of texture. So I would, I've started putting that in as well. And so now our mints has about seven, eight different vegetables in it. There's more vegetables than mints. Um, the kids have not chucked up a sink at all over that time because the change has been so incremental that they've really not noticed a difference and I guess their taste has changed over that time as well and, and we've started using whole grain um sorry wholemeal pasta now as well. And so because they're used to the mint, adding in that wholemeal pasta really hasn't changed it that much. And so um, we do the same with, you know, Mexican mints as if we're having um, tacos or something like that. Now it's packed with vegetables. So it's, and I'm not doing it intentionally to hide it from the kids. It's just that slow change that's not overwhelming to them because it, it does take a long time to change behaviours. Well, that was going to be my next question about uh, how can we get, um, or how can families encourage children to eat more vegetables? But I think you've answered that. That's that's great, and 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 you do see lots of recipes that yeah people are now changing to add more vegetables, and and it, and it makes them more nutritious and more delicious. In fact, rather than yeah. you know, and I think we went through a stage where it was. I guess, and, and people are still time poor, but it was easy to go to the supermarket, buy a packet of something that you add water and put in the oven or in the microwave, which wasn't healthy at all. It was prepackaged, yeah, not very nutritious, but it was quick. And, and I think people now are sort of starting to think more about cooking better meals and cooking them from scratch and, and actually sourcing the fruit and the vegetables from producers and, yeah, to really make a difference um, to their family's yeah. eating habits? Uh, even things like um, making things in bulk. So when I am making those mints, that mince now, I make enough for about three meals and I freeze it so that next time I can just take it out of the freezer, reinvent it in a slightly different way and the hardest and uh, most time-consuming part's already done. So it's, it's a fake-away meal really mm. <laughs> um, that, that's full of, full of health. And the thing is, it's it's not hard to do that, as as you say. You you make a bigger batch instead of just enough for that meal, and yeah, I mean, while takeaway might be quick and easy, so is getting it out of the freezer and and doing something else with it. Yeah, I mean, there's other things as well that have been proven through um, research to help uh, children to eat more vegetables, and some of those things are um, a non food reward, so stickers when they try something. Verbal praise is um, never wasted, but it's really important as well for parents to continually, repeatedly allow their children to taste things, even if they said they don't like it in the past, because that repeated taste exposure is the most effective way through um, multiple studies. There was a systematic review that looked at 30 different studies and repeated taste exposure was the most effective way of getting children to consume more vegetables. 
So, I mean, it's just a, it's about persistence. It's about not losing hope and uh, not fighting with your children or making mealtimes a battle because this leads to very negative associations with foods that they're not wanting to eat. So, you know, praising them if they even just put it in their mouth and don't take a bite because that's showing that they're at least in some ways exploring a new taste, a new colour, a new texture. The next time they might take a nibble, you know, praise them for that as well. Because if you force them to do it, all of us, when we're when we're forced to do something that we really don't want to do, it develops a little bit of resentment and there's those negative feelings there that we don't want them to have when it comes to looking after their health. Um, we want them to be participating in that. So I know my kids love when I, when I make a platter and I put it in the centre of the table and we all just take things from it, if all that's healthy there and that's dinner, then they will come around to the idea that, that they're allowed to choose and they're allowed to try what's in the middle. And that they love that style of thing. And another trick that I use, which is maybe <laughs> maybe a little bit sneaky, but I try and get more vegetables in my kids at afternoon tea time. I'll take some in the car because they're absolutely starving and there's no pantry that they can ask for something alternative from. <laughs> so I actually just, you know, give them veggies when they hop in the car in the afternoon so that they're at least getting one more serve before they're offered something else. That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, a little packet of carrot sticks or, you know, something that they can just uh, munch on. I mean, I, that, I love carrot sticks as a snack. You just have a raw carrot and just, yeah, munch away and it's delicious. But again, as you say, it's it's giving them reward and the praise and making it fun. I know when my children were little, trying to get them to eat lettuce was really interesting when they were sort of first eating different foods and things and they go, oh, I don't like lettuce. And we'd, and it's it's about making it fun. So we'd have these um, lettuce and celery, I can remember. The lettuce, we used to put a piece of cheese in the middle of the lettuce <laughs> um, and have a have, um, this crunching competition and make a little parcel and, and um, crunch away and, and, <laughs> and the celery the same, you know, who could make the loudest crunch and things like that and made it a fun <laughs> experience. And, I mean, yeah. they all love celery and lettuce now. But, um, it's making mealtimes fun and not, as you say, a negative experience. And, and I think that goes a long way to um, towards it as well. And as you say, yeah, you don't like things necessarily straight away. Even as adults, you don't, you know, you try yeah. something. I remember hating olives, absolutely Me loathing too. olives. And I love them now. My, mind you, my kids don't, but yeah. <laughs> well, one of them doesn't. But yeah, it's, it's, as you say, trying them and trying different varieties of different things that then your palate becomes accustomed to it and, you know, they are nice. And, and I think different ages, you try different things and, and you change your mind as well. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. So just one last question in regard to, to Flourish PYO, and I know you do a lot of uh, educational programs there as part of the community garden that you have. And uh, I, I just preface that by saying if people want to hear about more about Flourish and what Flourish do, if you listen to the Gutsy Matters podcast episode nine is where Annie was talking about what they do at Flourish PYO. So we won't go back over of what she said, but one of the objectives for Flourish PYO is to improve food security for the entire Toowoomba community. So just wondering what that actually means and can you explain to listeners what, what um, improving food security means? Yeah, so food security by definition um, is when all people at all times have physical, social and economic access to sufficient 
safe and nutritious food that meet their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy lifestyle. There's quite a lot of um, content in that definition. Um, but when you break it down, it, there are four dimensions of food security. Um, and these are availability. So is the supply adequate and of good quality? Access, do people have the financial and other resources to obtain food, such as you know, transport or is it um, within a close enough area to where they live? Utilisation, which is the ability to use, prepare, store and absorb the food well. Um, and stability, the constancy and reliability of a nutritious food source. So that that really is what food security is. And when people are food insecure, then the consequences are far-reaching. They, you know, when people are food insecure, they start doing things to compensate for the fact that they can't get food. So they might start skipping meals. They might reduce the quality of the food in their household. They might start, you know, doing without something in order to get food. And the consequences of this are really far-reaching, such as reduced work productivity, increased mental health problems, um, even domestic violence because of the stress within the home. There's mood swings. um, And for children, it affects their schooling performance. And for people who are chronically food insecure, and children particularly, this affects their long-term educational attainment, their job prospects, and, and their potential careers. So food insecurity is one of the factors that really perpetuates that generational poverty and it also leads to poor nutrition which has significant impacts on health both today and in the future as we sort of discussed earlier. The Hunger Report in 2019 by Food Bank Australia uh, reported that one in five Australians experienced food insecurity in the previous 12 months. And for Toowoomba particularly, our population is really vulnerable to this um, because of our high unemployment rate compared to other parts of Australia and the massive proportion of people in the worst live uh, are categorised in the worst two categories of social disadvantage. So um, there's a map on the Australian Bureau of Statistics website which um, shows the index of relative socioeconomic disadvantage by colour as per suburb. And if you look at that, it's, it's graded between like a light yellow for least disadvantaged to red, which is most disadvantaged, and there are five categories. Most of Toowoomba is in the red or the really dark orange, which are the two lowest groups of social disadvantage. So I believe that in Toowoomba, the issue of food security is probably even greater than what is seen throughout the rest of Australia. And and that's going to be worse now as well following COVID-19. And um, I think recently in the newspaper, they said that we have the highest unemployment rate in Australia in Toowoomba. Wow. I had no idea that that, that was in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there there is just so much work that we need to be doing. Yeah, I guess we just have to start with what we got what we've got and it's better to do something than nothing and really just being aware of that that you know people people adjust what they're adjust what they're doing there's a lot of shame associated with not being able to provide food for your family and you know people people won't openly come out and say that and I know from a number of times 
in general practice background that when you say to people, you know, have you started changing what you're eating? They don't openly say, I can't afford to do that. But when you start exploring that with them, they will say, you know, my, my partner, he only likes to eat takeaway food and we can't afford for me to then go out and, and have a different kind of meal or there might be hints that there's a power differential in that relationship there. So we, we really have to be aware of what other people might be going through and and not be judgmental for those who we think or you should just you shouldn't be buying that and putting that in your trolley because we really don't know what's happening in homes and um, there's a lot of stuff in Toowoomba that is going on below the surface that doesn't really present itself so I guess it's just being aware being sensitive to those kind of issues that that might be there. And being supportive and accepting of each other and actually looking out for each other. Absolutely. Mm. And I think in communities across the world, yeah, there's there's probably a lot of places that are far worse off than Toowoomba as well. Um, I mean, Toowoomba is a regional town in Queensland, but there are a lot of communities that, that really struggled to get any sort of food and I think that's what we need to be aware of and yeah. yeah, try and make a yeah. difference and uh, yeah. it's up to each and every one of us, I guess, to right. to try and educate people too about healthy eating and um, what they can do for for little or no money to, to actually help themselves as well. Yeah, I mean, food and having access to food is a basic human right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we're going to be eating, we need to make sure that it's, that it's food that's going to be doing us good. Um, so that too, I feel, is access to good food is... Yes is a basic human right. And the wonderful thing that you're showing through Flourish PYO is that that Mother Nature provides us with incredible abundances of in-season food at an extremely low cost and that it's actually quite a pleasure to be part of the garden and to grow it and to pick it and um, to be part of a community. So we're really privileged to have you guys here in town. Oh, thank you. We can't do it alone, though. <laughs> it is a community community effort. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully we help to spread the message through this with this interview that we've really enjoyed having. Thank you so much, Danielle. No, thank you so much for inviting us along to do that. We do really appreciate every all the support that you guys um, have given us through that. It's a wonderful opportunity. And, um, yeah, I wish you well in everything that you're doing too in doing your bit for improving health. Thank you so much and thank you for a great interview and it's been really educational and so people will understand a little bit more behind, you know, why, why it's so important to, to eat healthily. So thank you. Thanks, guys. If you've enjoyed this conversation and know people who'd be interested in knowing more about this topic, then show them you care and send them the link to this podcast. Keep up with our Gutsy Matters conversations. Subscribe and share with your friends. For extras, follow Stored Naturally on Facebook and Instagram. Gutsy Matters podcast is brought to you by Stored Naturally. We are the creators of the all-natural hemp fresh produce enhancer for longer-lasting and healthier fresh food kept in the fridge. Available at storednaturally.com.